0: It'll disappear from my consciousness after we <laughs> close this. <it, so. laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it is.
1: <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent, talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. So if you check them out, at the show's link, that's hire.com slash freelancer show, you can get double their normal hiring bonus. That's six hundred dollars instead of three hundred dollars. So go check them out at hire.com slash freelancer show.
2: Hi everyone, and welcome to episode number two hundred and sixty of the Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. And Curtis McHale. Hello. And Jonathan Stark. Hello. And I'm Ruben Lerner, and this week's guest is Ari Lamstein. Ari, welcome.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Great. We are very happy to have you here. Tell us a bit about yourself, and then we can tell everyone what we'll be discussing.
3: My name is Ari Lamstein, and I am a um, trainer and consultant who specializes in teaching people the R programming language. I wrote a popular R package called Choroplether or Choropleth R, which makes it easy to make Choropleth maps in R. And I suspect that we'll be talking quite a bit about that package uh, throughout the show.
2: Excellent. And what we brought you on to talk about, among other things, Ari, among like how do you spell, spell or pronounce (laughs) <laughs> <Carl Plesser>. um, <laughs> <laughs> is, you're not Sorry, I just got person. to talk about the elephant in the room, folks. Uh, That's
3: fine. Uh, <laughs> the dot com is available. It's, uh, <laughs> it's like an albatross around my neck. And uh, yes, I would do things differently if I knew it would become popular. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you're, you've been talking a lot lately at conferences and to people about how to make money from open source. And I think um, there are a lot of uh, listeners of the show and just freelancers in general who, you know, have technical insights, ideas, talents. They get involved in one or more open source projects. They even create one or more open source projects. And they're like, wait, everyone loves my work, but I have this little problem, like I have to pay the rent and eat and other such sundry issues. So... Tell us, how should people solve this problem? And this might take a little more than a one-sentence answer.
3: Sure. Uh, Should I address the elephant in the room first? Go for it. Would that help? Yeah. Tell
2: tell us maybe, you know, how did you get into open source in R and how did you create your package? And then how do you move from that to try to, like, monetize it? Maybe we can try going that direction a little
3: bit. Okay. Um, Let me just... Address this, the spelling and the naming first, because <laughs> I feel really bad. Everyone on the, on the call uh, reminded me of what a big problem that that uh, that word is for people. And it's something I run into all the time. So I'm assuming everyone here is familiar with the U.S. presidential election map that shows red states and blue states.
2: Yes. Sure, sure. Let's so say. Yeah,
3: so sure. that that map is called a choropleth map. And what makes it a choropleth is that it shows borders, in this case, U.S. states, and it expresses uh, value for those regions through color. So um, choropleth maps are useful for showing things like population, disease rates, unemployment rates, and so on. And they're different than heat maps because um, on a choropleth map, California is just one color, but on a heat map, you know, Northern and California would have different temperatures, so they're different colors. And the package that I wrote makes it easy to make choropleth maps in the R language, which is why it's called, spelt choropleth R as one word. Um, So you all, does that make sense to everyone?
2: Yes, yes, Yes. i enlightened.
3: So, um, yeah, I didn't like make up a random word, (laughs) which is what it (laughs) often sounds like. (laughs) You asked, Ruven, I think, uh, how did I start with open source? Was that the mm-hmm. question? So uh, I've been working for many years as a software engineer here in San Francisco. And over time, I realized more and more that uh, understanding how people were using the sites and apps we were that I was working on was more important, or I should say at least as important as actually implementing the features, which is what I started out doing. And as I was searching for how to uh, do this sort of analysis that I wanted to do, I discovered in 2013 the R programming language. And that that was a real eye-opener for me. And uh, at the time, I was working at an online real estate company. So you could imagine all of the data we had had a spatial component to it. And I really wanted to under. We were selling actually advertising at the zip code level, so uh, we had all these this listing data, and then the company would go off to real estate agents and say, uh, "Do you want to advertise in this zip code? Here's the sort of uh, number of listings that we have there in the last six months, the average property value, the number of leads that we've gotten for properties in those zip codes, and so on," and if you're trying to analyze this data, then uh, charts aren't enough because you want to understand the geographic patterns, right? It's it's really important if, you know, all the zip codes on the coast perform differently than inland ones or, or the east side of this of a particular metropolitan area versus the west side and so on. And what I discovered was that R didn't have the ability uh, back in 2013 to... Uh, effectively analyze, to do exactly what I wanted with data analysis and maps. And the nice thing about R is that it's very, very easy to write your own package. And so I said, well, I could just create my own package for this. And that's what I did. And then in early 2014, I said, you know, everyone in this R community has been so nice to me. Why don't I just contribute this package back? And, you know, if at least one person, it saves saves them some of the, the pain that I've had to deal with to solve this particular problem, then that'll be nice. And so in 2014, I released it and it became a lot more popular than I ever expected.
2: We, and you were working at the company at the time. So were you doing this on your free time or were you doing this at work? Did they that's, make any claim to it?
3: That's a really interesting question. So the company was extremely generous. Each, they had saw a program called Innovation Week And one week a quarter, you got to work on a project of your choosing. And so I picked this. And then I actually did spend, throughout 2014, I'll just tell you there's, um, I'll tell you what actually got me really passionate about this project was after I released it, I was clearly just using uh, internal sales data. That was the original purpose of the project. But there's this other component to it, which is I wanted to create some blog posts that showed people how to use it, demonstrated the features I developed and so on. And obviously I couldn't use our internal sales data, but so I I went on a search for uh, data that I could use. And what I discovered is, is that all these government agencies like the U.S. Census Bureau publish all of their data. And so all of a sudden, I was doing these incredibly interesting analyses, demonstrating things about America and later the world that I simply never knew. And that something just clicked in my brain that all of a sudden, this intersection of free analytical software, which is what I think of when I think of R, and free um, contemporary or up-to-date social science data uh, just for a lack of better word, that's that's what I think of when I think of the U.S. Census Bureau, the CDC, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, the World Bank. Um, it's very interesting. And so once I finished creating the actual mapping part of Cora I just started connecting with all these APIs and doing all these fun analyses. And that's pretty much what I was doing um, on my nights and weekends in 2014. And as well as um, the innovation weeks, which my company generously gave me.
2: So, so basically you're getting your salary from your company and you're, but you're still doing this partly in your free time. And then, I mean, fast forward a little bit, you're now on your own and you wanna turn this into something that you can make money from because there's no one paying for your salary.
3: Yeah, it actually, if you have a moment, I can tell you, there's actually a very dramatic story of how that, that change happened. It happened very, very quickly. I don't know if we have time for that, so I'll just...
0: Jay, go, go for it, go for it. We'll, sure. make, we'll make time.
3: You'll make <laughs> Man, Philip, you're so nice. <laughs> you're so generous. Um, I believe the actual date that everything changed was February 17th, 2015. So in 2014, it's a, there's a very specific day. And, um, you know, 2013, I was learning our 2014... Um, I had the skills and it just seemed like a green, like a, an open field for anyone who wanted to do this type of work could, could very easily do it. And, you know, obviously there was some tension with, with my boss and me. He's like, Hey, you know, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're not really paying you for the quarter thing. We, we'd like you to do more <laughs> of more of what, you know, we actually need. Uh, and I said, yes, that that's great. Okay. And then I went back to quarter and there was some tension there. Uh, but February, I think 11th, 17th, something like that, uh, I know the exact date, because I just gave a talk about this at a conference. I, I'm just blanking on the exact date. But that was a day that I was giving a ta- scheduled to give a talk at the San Jose Convention Center about Quora Plethora. There, there was a, an R meetup there that overlapped with a, a big conference. And um, that was at, you know scheduled for like 6 p.m. or something. And, and I went to work early um, so I could leave work early. Uh, and still get my work done. And you know, at exactly nine o'clock, I think there was an email that went out to everyone saying that our company had just been acquired by our largest competitor. And then, at nine thirty, my boss came over to me and told me that, as part of this um, acquisition, I was being laid off. And uh, I was like, well, that's 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 interesting. There was no no need to ask why because we we knew that my interests had, had diverged quite a bit for my company. But that evening, while well, right after I gave my talk, a professor of statistics uh, during the Q&A session stood up and said, Ari, I just want to tell you, and I'd never met this guy before. He said, the work you're doing with Coral Plethora is great. I use it when I teach my undergraduate statistics courses. And I'm writing a stats book right now about using, uh, right, doing Stats with R, and I'm including Corner um, in this book. And so I, I knew that I had succeeded at, at building something valuable. Um, and, I, and I knew that it had crossed the line from being just a hobby project. And now that I had been laid off, I knew the only way that I could really continue working on it the way I wanted to would be if, if I found a way to actually make money from it. And I gave myself to the end of the year to figure that out. Uh, that was in February. And then in December of 2015, um, I, I had my answer, which is I self-published a course on Cora on Plether, And I made, I think, $3,500, $3,300 during the launch. And immediately after that, I got a really great um, training and consulting lead. And so that is pretty much the story of how I monetized cora Plether was self-publishing a course. Very cool. Thank you.
0: So Ari, did you try other approaches to monetization along the way? Or was the course really sort of your, your first stop along that path of exploration?
3: That's a really interesting question. During, I think during 2015, you know, I had never, I know this is the freelancer show, I had... I had never freelanced before. Or maybe I had a, a brief period where I where I had during 2015. I did some hourly work or project work based on that came to me through people knowing people who needed mapping projects done. But nothing. I don't. That's that to me. That's that's qualitatively different than making money, teaching people how to use my own software. I don't think. I think an information product is really the way that that has happened. There have been other things I've done since them, but nothing worked as well. I mean, I may have tried other things, but I don't think anything worked as well. And I don't I don't recall anything specific right
0: mm-hmm. now. So, what what else did you try?
3: Um, I think. It's embarrassing, you know, at the, and I see, I see some beginner R programmers with their own projects doing this, you know, closing what comes to mind is ending a blog post with, Hey, do you want, you know, uh, to help me somehow? Do you, uh, I didn't, I never put a donate button. I think I've mm-hmm. seen a few people do that. Um, I'm glad I didn't do that. I think that it would have made it difficult to charge people for, for something later. Mm. Um, since, um so like closing a blog post with some cta to to hire me in some vague way for some help in some vague way um that's something i think i tried in 2015 and did not work and i think what i've been doing experimenting with now is um the problem i've had with courses and and i sold another course in 2016 It, it also had similar sales during the the launch period um The number one problem I have is people asking me for free help. And what I, the way I've solved that now is a monthly sort of support. I call it the Coral support package, where if someone asks me for help, I say, you know, look, you know, thank you for using Coral I do not provide uh, free support for it. You know, for $49 a month, you can have access to a private forum where I'll answer any questions you have. And you'll also have access to my courses uh, as long as, as, as a library. Basically, I bundle in a forum with access to the courses. And I own the courses so I can do that. And that's $49 a month. The courses cost $99 individually. So there's sort of a, a bargain aspect as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So I'm just, uh, I'm getting over my
0: level of shock and horror that you don't provide free support for... Your uh, packages. is not that like part of the social contract or something?
3: It is actually. Uh, <laughs> um, um, it it actually is, and I think a lot of people. I think everyone uses open source software. In it, I don't think there is any device you can buy that doesn't have some open source library in it. Somewhere would be my guess, and, and I'm saying that as a very off the cuff statement. I, I don't want to get emails with with people. Uh, <laughs> Are <laughs> you like, don't giving want me the counter gifts to... to come bug you? Come no, on. I don't. So but,
2: I, I but... Can just like in, introduce a historical note here because like I've been using open source since before it was called open source. You know, back when we used it to power our dinosaurs, and um, <laughs> basically <laughs> uh, there there was a, a company um, called Cygnus Support, and they were established to provide commercial support for open source. Um, And they were kind of controversial at the same time. Companies love them because, as we all know, companies want to avoid risk. And they're like, we don't care what the open source hippie types think about this. We are really happy to pay money to make sure that GCC works or that, you know, Emacs works or that a whole bunch of other tools work. Uh, Well, Cygnus support did pretty well for itself um, until it was bought by Red Hat, whose business model is, of course, we will give away the software, but we will sell support. And um, I think, I haven't checked in a while, but I think the then CEO of Cygnus is still the CEO of Red Hat, sort of did like a Steve Jobs reverse takeover kind of thing. Um, and they are, of course, super, super successful with this business model of, you know, you can call Red Hat and ask for support, and they'll answer by asking you for your credit card number. So, are you're doing this on a small scale, and it does seem anathema to how open source works, but, but it's not anymore, and people are mostly okay with it, I think.
3: Um, I I will tell you that it it's been rough actually. People in the art community, I have found uh, there's a lot of free stuff in the art community. There's a a lot of companies who will uh, employ people. I think prominent members of the art community who will give away a lot of free support because they're selling maybe corporate contracts. So it's just sort of growing the community and then they pick up these large corporate contracts. But I, I wouldn't say I've gotten hate mail. Um, but I have actually had, it's been a, 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 stark dichotomy. Um, whereas other people who have open source projects in the art community are sending me, um, they absolutely love what I'm doing and they want me to teach them what I'm doing. Um, They want to learn how to monetize their own projects. And I have people not only experienced our developers asking me for advice on um, sort of the how of how I did this, all the the technical details that uh, you and I all know have to be done to actually successfully launch something or offer something or market something. Uh, But there's also a split where there's a lot of people who are are hobbyists, and they 're there because it's a fun hobby for them, and something gets um, spoiled for them when uh, money gets when that that sort of tripwire of going from free to paid is um, something they uh, they'll be very vocal about about not liking and so it's it's really um, it's been, it's been really surprising for me. You know, I, well, look, I, I
2: guess, I guess part of the difference is that, like, with Linux, so like you know, Red Hat. So Red Hat's not going to answer your question, but there are lots of other people who can answer your Linux questions out there. Whereas if you have a, if you have a problem, right? It's either talking to RE for money, or not,
3: or going to right. Stack Overflow.
2: Ah, so there are answers in Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow for it.
3: Yes. Yes, uh-huh. there are. I mean, people still pay me, right. And people still go to Stack Overflow. I mean, I've gotten what, what's amazing is that there's such a, a run. Um, people are getting so much free help that uh, I, I, I have one particular email thread that came to mind is someone so desperate for help. I mean, he, he was writing um, his, his tech support email for me was um, it was like a novel, um, and he was filled with everything you, you'd expect. Of um, it, would, it means so much to me. Uh, this is so important for me. Blah blah blah. And I'm like, well, here you can, you know, please ask in the tech support forum, and it, it costs forty nine dollars. And then he said, no, I'll just go to Stack Overflow, and and his his question, <laughs> the last I, I checked, was still unanswered. So it was still unanswered. So there there's this very big difference between how people react emotionally and to whether they're actually willing to pay. And it's been, it's been very, very surprising. And I think, um, again, I'll, I'll just reinforce this point that the people who have spent say a thousand hours developing their own open source project or working on an open source project, they, they have a very, very different perspective than simply the users of the package. Or even people who maybe answer questions on Stack Overflow because they're they're hobbyists and they they like the community aspect of it. It's a very different perspective after you've sort of sunk in um, a massive amount of time into a project.
0: Well, that's that's interesting from a number of uh, perspectives. Like, there's the market research perspective where. If someone was looking for an opportunity and they saw a bunch of unanswered stack overflow questions, that would seem to suggest, oh, there's a real opportunity here, right? Like there's demand for information at least, demand for answers, but no supply of that expertise. And that might encourage you, oh, I should get into, <laughs> you know, chlor- chloroplether <laughs> um, But on the other hand, there's it also points out the disparity between People taking action that involves paying money versus their apparent need for that that solution right there's a big disparity you're seeing there that's, at least among the hobbyists
3: that's um the, I think you hit both um i think you hit the nail on the head with with both points that um well first of all, i want to say um because of all of this, you could imagine how satisfying it was. When I had this launch of a course that's not a general art course it's it's just only it's called map making an R with plethora, and people bought um, so so actually proving to myself uh, through through sales which is unlike unlike any other sort of proof uh, it's very different than the what that professor said to me at the conference which was just a very nice thing. Um, that That meant the world to me, and uh, I just want to to say, because I know that this is is being recorded that that 's the purpose for the conversation. Uh, if you are thinking of creating an open source project and you 're not sure if you can make money for it. Uh, the real reason i 'm on the show is i 'm hoping to reach you <laughs> and to say that that it can be done and that it is hard, and I know it 's hard, and people um, uh, a lot of people won't understand all, all the frustration you can have between this difference between popularity and not getting people to actually pay you for help. And, and it can be done. And when it, when you do do it, I mean, the $3,500, you know, I'm not living off of that. I'm not retiring off of that, but um, that making that money felt fundamentally different to me than any other money I've made in my life. So, uh, so, so soldier on is... <laughs> um, is, is my advice. And, uh, there was this other point, uh, you made about the choropleth plethora answers and popularity. And it's, it's a really funny thing because you're targeting employees. You know, I, I never told, I never spoke to people who would hire people to make these sorts of maps. Although I contracted with a, a data journalist once but most people who I'm talking to, who are emailing me, they're getting paid to, to make these maps or to do these analyses. And so it feels a little weird to them, I think, to then pay someone for help. And I think that's, a, I don't know if that dichotomy makes sense to you, but um, it's an issue that, that I think I've come up with a lot.
4: Wait, I'm getting paid, therefore Ari shouldn't get paid?
3: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Why would I pay someone to help me when, when I'm getting paid to do this? And it's not, I guess there's maybe, if it's not urgent, if uh, their boss isn't yelling at them for a deadline, then it's something that maybe they don't need the map or they don't need to customize the map in a certain way. Um,
4: yeah, the map's not really lot- for them. It's for their boss. So why should they pay for
3: it? Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. And I, I've run into that issue a lot. I've seen it too. My friend
5: does a CLI tool that's really just for developers and he offers support for like custom integrations and other stuff like that. But I know from talking to him, it's like, doesn't really happen. He just, it's a good way for him to not have to invest all his time in that really. He gets a few people now and again, and he has one corporation that pays for like ongoing support, but that's it.
3: That's, um, I, I think you should interview him on the freelancer show and I will definitely listen to it. Because, uh,
5: <laughs> well, say maybe he's <laughs> abrasive sometimes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> often
5: and often. a programmer. Oh my god! I know. Um, weird, eh?
3: <laughs> I'll tell you. So speaking of abrasive, um, in the art community, there's a lot of ways places you can go for free support, and the sort of original place to go is the R. Um, there's mailing lists, which I guess the the actual people who develop are they're they're called R Core. Um, they're there and answering questions and they're known for being abrasive. And I think Stack Overflow um, is sort of a godsend for the art community because people there really aren't allowed to be abrasive, right? Uh, the, the, if you leave an abrasive thing, it'll just get edited or deleted or whatever. And after getting maybe a couple hundred people asking you for help um, and having no way to monetize that, or struggling to figure out a way to monetize that. Um, it I found myself becoming abrasive and I, and I didn't like it because, you know, th- this story of me and R started with me um, loving uh, this project and, you know, getting a lot of tech support. Sometimes you get very frustrated people. They're in a very frustrated moment. They've uh, exhausted all other um, avenues to solve their problem and they can't. And they're just, uh, expressing that to you in an email that's uh, for them is making perfect sense because it's at, a, at a, the end of a very long sequence of events for them. And for you, it's like you're in the middle of a, a meeting with someone or working on something else, and then you just get this bile in your inbox. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Come on. We've
5: all done some programming. I remember when I first started, maybe my first year before I re- really even knew who to ask for things. And I remember like being in tears at my computer because I didn't even know how to ask the question that I needed an answer to yet.
3: I've right. been there too. I've been there too. Um, although I I'd say I didn't sign up for being, for getting those emails when I, uh, created this project. I think I actually, I provided free support while I was an employee. Uh, I love providing free support. I had a free Google group. Um, but then when I was became self-employed, I, I had to, to, to delete the group because, um, when you're self-employed, you're, either the choice is either I make money directly from this thing I love or I have to work for someone else. And then if you're providing free support for the thing you love, you're, you're hurting your ability to support yourself with it. So uh, the perspective completely changed.
2: Look, there are definitely open source consultants who say, I'm going to do consulting three days a week work an open source project one day a week and do, um, you know, support and so forth a few more times a week, right? So basically they're, they're saying, I, I can give free support, but it's being paid for by other things I do. And there's nothing wrong with that model, but it assumes that you, have, that you want to do consulting, that you have a lot of consulting coming in and that you're willing to basically work a day for free, partly as almost some sort of content marketing so people will know who you are and turn to you.
3: So I would everyone can do love that. I would love you to introduce me to those people because uh, I've been making a study sort of 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 this very issue of how I can integrate um, my open source work into paid offerings. I mean, I don't expect Cora Plether to to pay my bills fully. You know, I'll like let's be very clear about that. It's a popular R package, but it's certainly not. Uh, I never intended it to to, uh, to somehow become that popular. Could su- it could it could support me, um, um, and I and I doubt it, it ever would be. But what I'm seeing, the more I talk to the sort of icons in the uh, in the art community, what they're telling me is they are full time employees at companies that give them leeway. I have never. I don't know of any like prominent art developers who are also consultants now that I think about it. So like, I think that that role model would have to come from outside the community. Um, and I'm very interested in talking to those people and, um, you know, just seeing how their, their business works.
2: Yeah, I mean, I know, I know such people exist. They're rare, and they tend to be really shining lights in their community, but they definitely exist. Um, maybe not so much in R, but in other things.
3: Yeah, it may be, um, you know, like speaking, just following with that thread of copying models from other um, industries or, or networks. Um, I, I mentioned I now have the Core Plethora support package where for $49 a month, you get a forum where I... Uh, Guarantee I will answer your question. Um, and you get access to my courses. And that idea came from someone who said people do this in WordPress all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and so I said, okay, I'll try it. And, you know, someone bought it. Uh, that's a very new offering for me, but, but someone did someone bought it recently and I only launched it recently. So that's, um, now how I handle all my support requests is with, uh, you know, a thank you and saying, if you want me to answer your question, uh, please purchase this and I will answer it in the tech support form. And, uh, and more and more, I see that that's, I think in WordPress, they call it support licenses. My lawyers said don't yep. call it a support license. So I yeah, don't most pull the WordPress plugins. License.
5: Most WordPress plugins now, when you purchase the first thing, you get like a one year of support and updates. And then if you want it, it's a renewal fee. In fact, one of the biggest e-commerce solutions in WordPress just transferred to like not even a discount on renewals. It's just renew. Oh wow. It's it's been a tough road. I've been in the WordPress community for 10 years and I seeing I know a bunch of the developers and the owners behind some of these plugins and it like they've got so much hate mail that they're like but I gotta pay people like you say oh. it's good and you want to keep using it and they get hate mail oh like they get people like I not know my one friend Pippin who he had in the show years ago now he's like one of the nicest guys Ever And I don't understand, like when I see the support, i I'm in a private chat with him and a bunch of other people. I'm like, I can't believe you just keep like sending nice back to them. I'd be them to like where they could stick their support request. But he is like one of the nicest guys and always super nice about all of it. And it's it's a tough road. I couldn't do it. I, yeah, I don't, I don't sell plugins and tools like that because I don't want the support requests all the
3: time. It's good to know that I'm, I'm not the only person who gets the, the hate mail. Who, uh the open source programmers who get the hit mail.
2: Well, look, so many people, but so many people see open source, as, they think of open source equals free, right? And so they're shocked that anyone would dare to charge for anything. Um, and the notion that you can separate out the programming from the support uh, is shocking to them in many ways, but it doesn't make it wrong. And it doesn't mean that that's the only route to go, but it's it's an established one. The problem is that it seems like we're discovering if you go this route, you should be prepared to have people be upset with you, not because you're doing something wrong, just because some proportion of the community or some proportion of your users are going to have this expectation that everything will just continue to be free forever.
5: And if the market's big enough, then like I know I say in WordPress, you'll find, we'll say a discount plugin for WooCommerce and you'll find like five other ones that might be free, Right. Mm-hmm. So there are people that come in behind to do it as well, which is fine if they want to, but it's certainly been a change and it's getting, and say at least in WordPress, as more and more people have done it, it's getting less and less of an issue. I, do, I certainly don't hear people mentioning it before or now. And I remember even talking to Pippin as he was changing pricing and talking to the group of developers about it. And it like it was a big thing to work through. So just about as the community has changed, it's become less and less of
3: you an know issue. It's, it's, um, it's interesting you mentioned WordPress because I remember I only created uh, my first blog in, in 2013. Sorry, not 2013, uh, 2015, right after I was laid off and I decided I wanted to try and make some money from Quarter there. That was when I created my first blog. And I had a really hard time paying for plugins in the beginning because you know WordPress.com is free and that's where I started my blog. And then um, once I needed to build an email list um, and I wanted to install, I remember the the thing that led me to um, Bluehost, which is where I host now was it was $5 a month, but I think WordPress.com wanted maybe a couple of hundred bucks a year to install Google analytics. And I was like, well, I really want Google analytics. And so my choices now are, you know, this, this free hosting at at WordPress.com. Well, will become $200 uh, a year. And that's that's just the number that I recall now. It's probably not the actual number. Or I could go to Bluehost and pay, I guess, $60 a year or something like that. And I I repeated that process. Um, That was a big thing for me. And now I use Thrive Leads for lead capture. But for the longest time, I was using whatever free plugins there were. It was really hard for me to to pay money for these things, and then at some point you just get used to it. You're like, your friends are saying, for this particular problem, you have this this paid plugin is probably the the way to go. And once you stop being an amateur, um, who's or a, a hobbyist, I should say, and you're you're like, well, my website is is a a, a major way I get I get clients. Um, it's it's a source of income for me. Uh, then then paying money is no longer uh, an issue provided that that it's a reasonable amount of money. But I certainly had that that problem as well.
5: Yeah, and then you also use the word reasonable there and reasonable is different for everyone, right? So even looking at your support clients, you have someone, if you charged a dollar for support, they'd be like, oh, sure, I'll give a dollar. But when you charge, you know, whatever, then they're saying, well, it's not worth it anymore. And that's because their value has changed. It's changing people's value mindset is is hard. And especially you. in an ingrained industry, right? We were yeah. talking about, uh, just before the call, you we were talking a little bit about Stallman, I believe, and his, like, yes. he just wouldn't see the value in it, right? There's things he's just like, I'm not going to do it. It's not open source, I'm not doing it. So some people will never see it. Some people are willing to learn and grow with it.
2: All right, I'm curious. Let's, let's say I'm a developer of an open source product of some sort, you know, open source package. And I'm a freelancer, and I want to make this into my career. So is the right route or a right route sort of what you did with some combination of selling online courses, selling training, selling consulting? What, what direction of those should, should you try first?
3: Uh, that's, that's interesting. So uh, the question was, basically, if someone was starting from scratch and they had a project that they wanted to monetize, I guess. Is that the the question? Um, The best advice, well, let me me just think for a moment. Yeah, I I think the, the best advice I got was from Nathan Barry. He has a book called Authority and he's a fan of a marketing strategy called Audience Building. And I recommend that you create an audience based around your project, um, your your open source app. And it's funny, I actually just gave a conference talk on this at an R conference, um, and I called the title of the talk was "Beyond Popularity: Monetizing R Packages." And after telling my story, I think I gave people three tactics for. Um, How to monetize their own R packages, and I created a a really like tongue-in-cheek acronym for these tactics. I called it the best darn system for monetizing an R package. And please don't tell me that's an acronym. BDS. Oh no, (laughs) no, B E S T D A. All right,
2: that
3: would be terrible. But BDS. So let's see if I can remember it now. The B is for build an email list of people who are interested in your package. The D is deliver free training to your email list. And the S is to sell a training product to your list. Um, Most open source developers in R, like Twitter is very, very active for anything related to R. And a lot of people are I mentioned are asking me for advice on how to monetize their R packages and the first thing I tell them is you need an email, you need the email addresses of people who are interested in your package. You need to be able to initiate communication with them. And a lot of them will counter and say, well, look, I, I'm really popular on Twitter. When I tweet, a lot of people like my tweets, they retweet me. Um, some people will have a blog and they'll say, my, my blog is very popular. And what I, in my talk, I actually compared uh, engagement rates between tweets and email and, and it's orders of magnitude larger. Um, uh, email really is just, just that much better. And once you, uh, most people, and this is just the, the deeper that you look in comparing email as a marketing channel to Twitter and a blog Um, just the more eye-opening and shocking it is. And that's that's really hard for a lot of people to uh accept because you know they're they're thinking, hey, email equals spam, and I don't want to be a spammer. And I get too much email already. Why would I want to give more email to people? Um so like getting people comfortable with using email um as a marketing channel is key. And then the most popular thing I've ever done online is create a free email course called Learn to Map Census Data in R that teaches people how to use Quora Plether to map uh, census data in R. You know, as soon as I launched it, um, within a few days, I think I had 600 people sign up for it. It it really... Wow. Yeah, well, everyone wants to learn R and my course gave them a fun way to learn R, you know. You get to see that um like mapping census data and art is really fascinating like looking at maps of hispanic percent hispanic by county and you see so clearly that um the largest the counties with the highest percent and states with the highest percent hispanic are all bordering mexico which isn't surprising but when you visually see it, it's just, it's just jaw dropping. Um, all these demographic trends are just fascinating to to poke around with and explore. Um, and yet these are all people who were saying, yes, teach me about, um, using Quora Plethora through, uh, through email. And then after I, I launched that, all of a sudden I was doing a lot of blog posts, all the questions I got, I wrote blog posts answering. And then that, that both, uh, Grew my relationship with my audience, and it grew. It, you know, every time people see the the blog post, they get the pop up to take the free course, and that's how the audience grows. And then also, uh, everyone who's on your email list is getting more training from you. And after you do this for a while, I think it will be very, very obvious to you what the paid course will look like. And then the number one problem you'll have is really believing that people would will actually pay money for you to coalesce. All of the free stuff you've given out, add a bit more, and they'll actually pay and value the packaging, whether it's a, a video course, which is what I did, or an ebook. But yes, people will, in fact, pay. And so that's the three steps that I would recommend anyone listening to the show who wanted to take a similar path as me take.
2: Very interesting. Do, do, you, ever, do you regret uh, not having made uh, a or commercial in some way?
3: no. Not at all. No, I one thing I really love about the art community is that uh, there is so much amazing free stuff and it's so easy to contribute. And I'm, I'm very happy to have contributed in the way that I uh, in the way that I did. Uh, it's I think it's one of the most interesting things I've done in my career, actually. Uh, so I don't, I don't regret it at all. Um, if I could do everything all over again, I would have uh, created, you know, and it may have been tricky to do this because when you're a full-time employee, it's very difficult to, um, it's kind of dicey to have your own online identity because I think the full-time employment contracts sort of (laughs) control everything. But uh, I probably could have created my own blog um, about the project. And I wish that I had learned marketing, like audience building and email marketing and so on earlier. And I wish that I had built that audience um, from the get-go. That's the only um, change that I would have done. Like, I wish I knew everything I knew now about sales and marketing earlier or started earlier. Like, there's no reason why... Um, maybe it would have been a problem when I was an employee, but like charging $49 a month for a forum where I answer questions, um, I could have done right from the get-go. I just didn't know how. So yeah, that's it. I just wish I knew everything about marketing and sales earlier. Don't I'm curious,
2: all? Way, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm also curious, like, I, I think I hinted at this a little earlier. Maybe you did as well. When I was working for, I guess it was HP, you know, back right after college, um, they made me sign a contract more or less saying that anything I developed was owned by them. Did you ever have your employer claim ownership of anything having to do with flow plethora?
3: That's actually a really great question. Um, Shortly, you know, when I wanted to release it to the world, uh, I had to speak with the lawyer at my company. Uh, So uh, within R, what makes R special is the package system, I think. I think that anyone can create a package which can then be used and imported by another package. And... um, the way that that works largely is by publishing the package on CRAN, the central R archive network. And in order to, for me to put the package on CRAN, I had to license it under a, uh, open source license. And, and my, my company's lawyer wanted the BSD three license, uh, I think it is the BSD-3 license. I think they, they wanted some variant of that, which CRAN wouldn't accept. And that was a really tough negotiation with me and, and my company's lawyer and the other company and, and CRAN. But we eventually released it under the BSD-3 license. And I think they, I always get licenses and copyrights confused, but uh, my employer owns the copyright, I think. But the license is BSD three, and it, oh, that's interesting. It, it took a some finagling to get that done, but but uh, this wasn't ever anything remotely like a competitive advantage for us. Uh, it was totally unrelated to what we actually sold, and you know, being in San Francisco, a San Francisco tech company, it, it may even be attractive to the company to say. That um, we have a popular open source thing um, so that that 's how that that played out. and I think actually I put the code on GitHub publicly before we even had a license, uh, which may have been a bad thing, but it was it 's so irrelevant compared to what the company how the company is actually valued. Um, it was a large public company, a startup that became a successful startup that became a successful public company, which then got acquired. So th- this wasn't like the, <laughs> the, the, the company that bought us wasn't buying it for this software. Uh, <laughs> Very interesting. Um, we
2: should probably wrap up soon and move on to PICs. but I, I have at least one more question. I don't know if anyone else uh, wants to ask them something more before we start wrapping up.
4: I had a, a comment that I don't know if I was actually going to do it in PIX, but I uh, might want Ari to respond to it. So I think maybe I'll bring it up now. Uh, which is that? At my my main consulting client, we just started using something called Caddy Server to to operate as an SSL endpoint for a bunch of sites that we host on different custom domains for customers. It's that it, and it uses Let's Encrypt to automatically create certificates. I mean, it's basically an HTTP server that automatically creates ssl certificates it's like insane and it's open source and it's apparently pretty popular and the pricing model that they use is that it's it's free <clears throat> but there's a pricing page and if you go to the pricing page uh, there are two tiers one is a sponsorship tier for five thousand dollars a year or an engineering package for uh nine thousand nine hundred dollars a year and I can see from the site that there are at least, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six sponsors. So the single developer who created Caddy Server got it, you know, presumably at least $30,000 from having this free software online. And I I thought that was a super fascinating approach that isn't something that, um, you know, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that you could really use for chloroplasts plethora. (laughs) Sorry. It's fine. But, uh, but, but since we're talking about, you know, possibly freelancers in the audience, taking one of their open source packages and making them and monetizing them, if it's, if it's the kind of thing that would likely get used by a large enterprise, then maybe that would be an approach where, I mean, let's see the sponsorship package. Uh, The engineering package is the one that contains all the support the sponsorship package is really like, you know, keep caddy free, keep it popular, keep development going, uh, since you're depending on it, because it's, it's just one of those things that it's very foundational plumbing level things. So you want to kind of set it and forget it. And man, is it amazing. So, uh, I would, I mean, I could easily imagine our little startup spending $5,000 a year just to say, thank you, because it totally, is amazing and, and solves a major business problem for us. So that I just thought I, I is, thought I'd throw that out there.
3: That's really interesting. What's it? What's it called again?
4: Uh, the the domain name is caddyserver.com. C a d d y.
3: Yeah, I, you know, I'm thinking of creating my own podcast, which will focus on this aspect of making money through open source, and um, one of the the goals I want to do is is interview people who were, who have these models um, and and see how they're doing. You know, speaking of the enterprise stuff, um, you know, one of the the biggest compliments I got was when I realized that people at the CDC were using Coroplethor to to map, um, you know, health data, epidemiology data, but that's very different than, you know, if you weren't using Caddy Server would you have to pay money to manage your SSL certificates? I've, I've only paid for them through Bluehost, so I'm not no, the expert on that.
4: No, because there's a new th- new-ish thing called Let's Encrypt that issues free um, SSL certificates, but Caddy Server makes it so much... It's, it's still kind of arcane, though. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit arcane. If you're managing multiple servers and multiple environments, you know, development, staging, production, and you've got, you know, in our case, we probably have 30 different servers. Uh, it, it gets really complicated and a minor, I mean, it's not minor, but uh, they really just, it just turns it from something that's possible to do for free to something that totally works out of the box with like, oh man, like, like crazy simple. And when you consider, when you, I mean, it only takes like five seconds of math to calculate the dev, dev hours that you're saving. And it's like, yeah, it's worth $5,000 a year. It's probably worth $5,000 a month, but don't tell them I told you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Look, we had something sort of similar in my research group, my PhD research group, where we produced uh, a programming language that we use for a simulation building. And first it was free for educational use. And if you want it for business use, you need to ask. Um, and then it became open source into the new public license, the GPL. And companies were willing to pay a lot of money for a support license when support basically meant maybe once a year they'd send one question. But they just wanted the peace of mind they were totally willing to pay for. Now, of course, my advisor's perspective was, I need 20 more companies like this. (laughs) Um, And because it was a university, then the university itself took half of that money for overhead. But the idea of companies paying for open source because they have the money, they see it as a valuable part of their infrastructure and they're totally okay with paying if it means reducing risk down the road. Um, that That's something that I think, again, the, the Red Hat people have figured out and latched onto and done very well with.
4: Yeah, you said that very early in the conversation, Ruben, about companies uh, being allergic to risk because they are. and the And it's the thing that the hobbyists don't care about. So they're never going right. to get the same kind of value out of... Uh, that's right. Out of hand holding. You know, it's they're just not. They, yes, there's a, a, they might have this really powerful emotional desire and this frustration and this anger because this one piece of information that's going to finally remove their keyboard smashing fury is behind this $49 paywall. And Ari's just standing there like with his hand out. But those are not customers. You know what I mean? Like not everyone right. is your customer. Those are not your customers. Your customers are the people that have, you know, those are the kind of customers that have time to type up a novel of an email. <laughs> the, the kind of customers that you're looking for are the ones that have more money than time. People who don't have a lot of time and they have plenty of money to send you $40 a month just in case they need some help. You know, you can't, you just can't please everybody. If you're doing anything interesting or useful or helpful, you're going to be ticking people, some people off, and other people are just going to be like, you know, thanking you profusely. So I don't know, but it is, it's super interesting. I've been been eating popcorn, listening along. It's like, wow, you know, that the emotional angles and the expectations in the open source community, they're super real. I mean, I'm not saying they're not real. Um, And the, the demands that, emotional demands it puts on someone in your position. It's super fascinating, really complicated. So, thanks There's, for sharing that.
3: Thank you. There, I just want to briefly respond if we have time to something Ruben said about Red Hat.
2: Sure, sure. Um, if it's I, responding I mean, to me, then we definitely have time. <laughs> 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 um, no picks today, folks. My question was answered.
3: Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned, I, I just gave a, a conference talk about this very topic, and in the R community a few years ago, a bunch of companies banded together and created something called the R Consortium, which is designed um, to basically help, help R be... Um, uh, more, more stable, and um, to help grow it and keep it stable and prospering, basically. And I was talking with um, someone on the board of directors. And actually, interestingly enough, uh, my my talk was very popular with people, um, the, the the people on the R Consortium because they they're very interested in, in how um, package developers can can make money. But he he said a lot of people talk. About Red Hat as an example of how to make money or uh, how to make a business around an open source project, and he said they are actually the exception to the rule. Most mm-hmm. most open source projects aren't that successful, you know. Decades later, and are he pointed out is actually one of those. Um, those counterexamples as well, R has been around, I think, since the late 90s. So it is um, it is very successful as well. But interestingly, there is no equivalent of Red Hat in the R community. There, there are successful companies, uh, but, but nothing quite, quite at that scale. And that was just interesting to me that because you're not the first person to mention Red Hat, uh, but to hear that they are actually the, the uh, exception to the, to the rule was was just enlightening to me. It was something I hadn't thought of.
2: They're definitely the exception, but they're one that I think can be emulated in many ways. Because they basically said, we're not going to care about the individual. right? They basically said, the individuals are, are not, it's like what Jonathan just said, they're not our customers. So we're going to create this Fedora product, and we're going to give it away for free and say, here you go, hobbyists, have fun. Um, and and they are they said, you know, CentOS, you want to copy Red Hat and do a search and replace and release on your own, have fun. We are not going to stop you. But our customers are the enterprise. And the enterprise that wants open source wants to put some money down and get support. And we're just going to concentrate on them and we're going to ignore everyone else. and And I think they were among the first open source companies and still one of the only ones to say, that's our strategy. Go for large organizations that have more money than time and want to use open source. And that's how they've been to, uh, you know, that's how I think they've been successful in many ways.
4: Fedora was the first Linux I ever used. You know, it's like, it's almost like a content marketing thing for them.
0: Yeah, I think, I think um, like I found it confusing initially that they named it differently. But I mean, it's thematically related. But I think actually that's kind of critical in drawing that line in the sand about what's free and what's not
2: we could talk about this for a long time, but I know some of us have other appointments, so let's uh, start to wrap things up and do picks. Uh, Curtis, what do you got for us?
5: After talking with a friend this week about just money and business, I'm going to have three recommendations. And I know Reuben and I recorded a podcast a while ago talking about Profit First, right, Reuben? So that is going to be one of my recommendations. And then the other two are from a guy named Dave Ramsey. And one is his podcast. Uh, If you're looking to just answer more money questions, listen to it for a while. With the caution, he goes a little over the top sometimes. But he's going to answer tons of radio show questions um, from people all about uh, what they're doing with their personal money. And then he has a book called The Total Money Makeover, uh, which helped my wife and I years ago now get out of all debt entirely. So. It's just good if you're struggling with business, struggling with money, or just need a, a mindset change, then do that. And one of the key things to remember is that most of those people driving around in a fancy car, they can't actually afford it. They're buying something they don't really want to impress people they don't like with money they don't have. Ooh.
2: Ooh, I like that. Burn.
5: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Philip, what do you got?
0: I, this past week, recorded two episodes of the Consulting Pipeline podcast from the passenger seat of my car in the driveway. <laughs> and um, it sounds freaking great. <clears throat> uh, so I'm going to recommend some of the, the two things that made it possible to do that, aside from the uh, iPhone that I recorded it on. This, there's this mic, the Audio-Technica ATR2100, which I, I just continue to be impressed with how good it sounds. For, for a podcast, mic, um, whenever people ask me about what kind of equipment they should get if they're getting into podcasting, I say, well, unless you happen to work out of a recording studio, do not get anything that's made by the company Blue. Their products are great, but they're terrible for most people's usage of them for recording speech. And uh, this Uh-oh. little Audio Technica mic just is... I think wonderful because of how great it sounds when you get it about two three inches away from your mouth. Turns out you can plug it into an iPhone using the Apple Camera Connector Kit, and then use this other app called Boss Jock Studio to um, record a podcast and do things like you know interject music or pre-recorded um, interviews or what have you. Um, just just using the touch interface of the phone. It's not like the most beautifully designed piece of software, but it works. And it sounds great, and um, and I was I was quite surprised with how functional it was. So I guess those are my picks this week: the Audio Technica ATR twenty one hundred microphone and uh, Boss Jock Studio.
2: Very good, Phil. If you should know uh, uh, Ira Glass of uh, This American Life fame. I've I've heard him say in interviews that the best place to listen to radio is in your car. Uh-huh. So now we have the corollary to that, where the best place to record radio is in your car as well.
0: It's actually acoustically a pretty decent environment for recording speech. You know, it's like most cars are, you know, just have enough little reflection and, and enough sound absorption that it's it's remarkably similar to a vocal booth in a recording studio in terms of uh, acoustically. <laughs>
2: That's great. Jonathan.
4: Yes. I'll I'll plus one on the ATR 2100. I have one. It's my backup mic, and every time I've used it, I've been really really happy with the outcome. I haven't used it in my car yet, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, my, I just have one pick for this week. It is a book called "Do the Work" by Stephen Pressfield that I've been browbeating Philip into listening to uh, or <laughs> reading. But it's a it's I, I'm an Audible fan, so I listen to books usually almost. Always, in fact. And this one is, it's only about an hour and a half long. It's kind of a follow-up to his, I think, perhaps more popular book, The War of Art. And he, but, but it's just like a, a distilled, concentrated uh, mm-hmm. read on his shtick, which is about the resistance, which is the thing that would cause someone who is perhaps thinking about creating or open sourcing a library from doing so. Uh, it, it's kind of like a more uh, sorry Amy, a more grown-up version of just effing ship from Amy Hoy. Okay. Uh, but it's the same kind of thing. It's it, it maybe a little bit more. Well, I don't know if it's more pragmatic, but anyway, they're they're on the, the same category of book if you've heard of that one. And it uh, it is read by the author, and I really for nonfiction books like business books, I really prefer that. Assuming the person can, you know, it's not just horrible. But um, I really like when I, I get nonfiction books where the author reads it. And that particular one, he does read. And I find it to be just super persuasive. I really, really think people like that. So check out Do the Work by Stephen Pressfield on Audible. And that's it for me.
2: Excellent. Ari, you have any picks for us?
3: Sure. Well, if you are interested in actually learning... How to use Coral Plethor. Um, and I recommend taking my free course, Learn to Map Census Data in R, which you can get to at censusmappingcourse.com. And if you are interested in learning about how to monetize your own open source project, I have created what I call the Profitable Portfolio Blueprint, which you can get at Profitable Portfolio. ProfitablePortfolioBlueprint.com. And that contains um, examples, um, steps and examples that I use to monetize quarter and which other people are currently using to monetize their own um, data science projects.
2: Very good. Uh, so my pick um, is actually, uh, I decided that I'd, I'd go with something related to the topic for today and so when I mentioned uh, Raymond Hedinger, who's one of the core uh, Python developers, gave a talk, I guess it was about six months ago um, at a conference called Being a Core Developer in Python. And he describes uh, what it's like to join a team that's working on a very popular open source project and what's involved and sort of how to get involved and, and how to do things. And he mentions along the way, by the way, one of the important things he says is, don't be so enthusiastic about adding new features, Because when you add a feature, it's good for some people, bad for other people, and you're balancing a community. Um, And he talks a bit about sort of what he does, also in terms of his work. So if you're looking for someone who does indeed spend his time offering support, free and uh, paid, and I think he's one of these people who makes a lot of money as a consultant a few days a week or as a trainer, and then the rest of the time contributes to the open source community. It's definitely he's an excellent, excellent speaker and well known in the Python world. Um, And what's his name again? Raymond Hettinger. I'll, I'll put in the show notes so everyone can spell it. Yeah, please do. Uh, and he also, he, um, he, has, he has this thing when he speaks where uh, he, he bangs his uh, his hand on the table and he expects people have seen his talks before. So he bangs his hand on the table and someone yells, there must be a better way. And he says, there is a better way. And then he goes on. And like, it's kind of funny once or twice. After a while, if you watch too many of his <laughs> talks in a row, it gets a little annoying. And then like That's every funny. so often I'll hear myself like when I'm giving a talk, I'll be like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And I'm thinking, oh no, oh no, like don't, <laughs> don't do this in front of them ever. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of cute. You know, it gets people involved, wakes them up a little bit. It's good. Um, so I think that's a, that's a fun talk uh, for, for people to watch on this subject. Um, Ari, if people want to be in touch with you, we'll put it in the show notes. But uh, you mentioned your uh, free courses and so forth. Any, any other good ways to get in touch with you if people have questions?
3: Sure. My... Website is arielamstein.com, A-R-I-L-A-M, like Mary, S-T-E-I-N.com. And there's a contact button on that homepage.
1: Excellent.
2: Ari, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. And we'll be back next week on The Freelancer Show.
1: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.